Well, good morning. A special welcome to those of you who are worshiping with us online. You don't know where the camera is. I don't want to look off at the side. So glad you're able to join us on YouTube or Vimeo um, this morning. People, I mean, Joe stole most of my thunder, so uh, the sermon would be very brief this morning. No more than 40 minutes, I promise. I'm kidding. I know there are a lot of you who are new. I saw your faces this morning and don't know you. My name is Phil Hunter. I'm the executive pastor, which means very little, but uh, I'm here, and I'd love to get to know you better. If you have any questions about the church or would like to get together for coffee or uh, breakfast or lunch during the week, just let me know. Three things I'd like you to keep in mind this morning as we go through this passage and through this, this study. Uh, the first is, Keep in mind, the whole person of Christ are all in all. Second, keep in mind the cross of Christ. And third, keep in mind the lordship of Christ. If you have a Bible or if you'd like to open to the passage that's in the bulletin, we're going to read from 1 Corinthians 1 and 3, beginning with 1 Corinthians 1.10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the the same mind, in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And then chapter 3, verse 3. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not merely being human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Please pray with me. Father, let's pray this morning that as we open your word, we would listen and hear you speak to us, Father, about the dangers and the damage that divisions cause and about the beauty and glory that unity brings in you. Amen. Well, if you're new to the church, you may have missed a recent congregational vote that we had. 
and the congregational vote, as is often the case in maybe all churches, but our church, as a Presbyterian church, people have differences of opinion. That shouldn't come as a surprise, but we did have a successful outcome to the vote in that we elected, by a large majority, a candidate who will be arriving here in a few short weeks, months, by June. So differences are not the same as divisions. Differences are common. If my wife and I could agree on something entirely 70 or 80% of the time, that would be a new record for our marriage. We generally get around to an agreement, but it isn't always by an overwhelming majority. I was thinking uh, yesterday, I think, if a, if a president of any country, you name it, could get an 80% uh, confidence rating or popularity score, that would be outstanding. They would pay a lot of money for that. And so sometimes we be, we're, just, we're thankful for what the majority decides is the right thing to do. But that means change. So change is coming to our congregation, change is coming into our lives. There's nothing that we can do to prevent that or block that. And by change, I mean any change can create conflict and division. If you were here a few, maybe a month or two ago when I changed the bulletin, uh, <laughs> which I won't soon forget, <laughs> it had a ripple effect that uh, was both good and bad, but uh, I sure learned that uh, changes uh, are uh, uh, conflictual by nature. Um, so I thought it would be timely given our congregational vote change that is afoot here in our church and around the world. That would be good and healthy for us to see what God's Word has to tell us about division and unity in the church. Now, we know from Second Timothy that all Scripture— certainly including today's scripture, is inspired, God-breathed, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for all training in righteousness. And we say that, we read that, do we believe that? So I'll say right here up front, this is definitely in the correction category of the word, right? And it is not any more fun for a preacher to correct than it is for a parent to correct. And I still remember not that long ago when I had to correct my own children and how I was never sure if they really were hurt as much by the correction as I was. Every once in a while, maybe. But most often it was me that was hurt because of the disappointment that they had brought to me or to maybe my wife or maybe to their teachers. But we need to hear the whole counsel of God. That's how we become fully formed Christians, not by taking the parts that we like. So let's begin. As we came into the church this morning, we left the world. We're away from the world for a few precious hours. It feels great, doesn't it? I kind of wish we could stay here all week. We don't want to bring the church into the world, though. I'm sorry, we don't want to bring the world into the church, but we want to take the church into the world. So what do we see in the world today due to the effects of sin? And sin is kind of like a, a viral particle. It infects every cell in our bodies. We are ridden through and through with sin. Well, we see something that's pretty obvious if you pick up a newspaper. We are a lot better as a people, as a, ra- as a human race, 
at war than we are at peace. Can you count right off the top of your head how many wars we've had in the last century? Much less this century. I looked it up. Right now, we are on the verge, thanks to the, (laughs) I I would say, uh, brilliance or incompetence, you take your pick, of our world leaders who are on the brink of a nuclear war, World War III. Russia and Ukraine are on the forefront of our news. Azerbaijan and Armenia are on the the brink of a brutal war. Yemen and Saudi Arabia have been at war for decades. China and Taiwan, it's an entire tinderbox in the Far East. India and Pakistan have been at war since Pakistan was divided in two. The funny thing is these are all neighbors. These people are all related. Most of them are ethnically and culturally very, very similar, and they're at war. Closer to home, we can't even use the colors blue and red without starting an argument. Or what constitutes gender? We're so ready to pop that even the minor conflicts are dangerous. Mask, no mask, vaccine, no vaccine, trust the scientists, distrust the science, and the list goes on. How about our family lives? That should be a place of calm, a place of cohesion and unity. Well, if divorce is the most obvious sign of division between people, the United States is leading the way. Nearly a quarter of children in our country live in single-parent households. The world's highest rate, with Russia right behind us. Interestingly, Nigeria and Vietnam were among the lowest. I think they had 3 or 4% rates. I don't know why. What's been the result on our country? All you have to do is look around. Crime is rampant. Go to any city. Drug addiction is at a record high. Literacy is at a record low. And incarceration rates are off the charts. It's catastrophic. If we look at the world, we see nothing but conflict and division. How about you? Has your week been free of conflict? That, that was symbolic, that didn't mean I. How about us? Do we bring conflict into the church? There's an old saying, if you have a cup of coffee and you... And you Tap it, what comes out is going to be coffee or whatever else is in that cup. So we tend to spill over what's going on in our lives when we come to church. We're just people. Look around this morning. If you just, just, just for a second, look around at the people around you. See how different we all are? We drive different cars. We live in houses. So look in Zillow, you can see how much the house I live in is worth. It's pretty easy to kind of compare each other and see see how different we are, how well some of us are doing, how well some of us aren't maybe doing. 
I wouldn't say look at the police blotter because I'm sure none of us are in there, but. How easy it is to bring those differences into the church, isn't it? Differences about the way we believe, the differences about the way we think church should be done, our lives should be lived, our children educated, types of jobs we should be involved in or not, our preferences certainly can lead to divisions. Preferences even about things like whether or not to pray for the American bison. I hear that that has been a source of conflict in the youth group. We had a church split schism at the church I left in Arizona before we came up here. And I can just tell you, it was probably one of the most horrible uh, experiences that we had. Uh, It pretty much ruined the health, mental health, physical health of our senior pastor who ended up leaving and damaged relationships. People that we were really close to were not close to anymore. Not all of them, but many of them. And I can remember sitting down with a younger couple, and this, this young man, probably in his late 20s, I had been discipling him for, I think, three years. One day a week, we'd meet early in the morning to pray, talk, study. He, he asked me if I would meet with him and his wife. And they sat down, and they said, Phil, we can't stay here anymore. I said, Why? They had four, they had four, I think they got four, four adorable kids. And I said, why? Why would you leave? We can't stand the conflict. We don't come to church for conflict. And I still think about that couple sitting on that couch. They're at the church and thinking, I hate this. I hate division. So today's passage couldn't be more pertinent. If the world is strife-torn, the church should be a refuge, a place where love and unity of spirit are evident, where you walk in, just like we talked about seeing the, the walkers and their kids, where you walk in and you almost get an automatic stress release and a sense of calm and peace and charity. That should be the church. That should be us. There should be something different about God's people. We should exemplify and exude a common love for each other. There's perhaps no better source of wisdom on this topic of division than the Apostle Paul. You think about Paul. He may have been the most divisive persona in the New Testament. He was a product of a divisive, critical group of people, the Pharisees. Yet by the grace of God, he was transformed into a mighty witness for truth and charity and understanding and compassion. So for context, what was the world like at the time that Paul wrote this letter, about 50 AD? Was it much different than our world today? What type of city was Corinth? Corinth was one of the great cities of the ancient world. 
a community very much like you might find in Los Angeles or San Francisco or Seattle or maybe even Boise in a few years, if we're lucky. It was prosperous, busy, growing, had a a deserved reputation for the reckless pursuit of pleasure. Corinth had a rich ethnic mix and was a center for sports, government, military, and business. A church historian called the Corinthians intellectually alert, materially prosperous, but morally corrupt. So what type of church would we find at Corinth? A church that mirrored the culture? Well, it was likely a large church. Many Corinthians had been converted to Christ. It was full, though, of cliques, each following a different personality. Many of the Christians were very snobbish at fellowship meals. The rich kept to themselves, and the poor kept to themselves or left alone. There was very little church discipline. A lot of laxity was allowed, both in morals and in doctrine, an all-too-common combination. They were unwilling to submit to authority of any kind, and the integrity of Paul's own apostleship was frequently questioned. There was a distinct lack of humility. And consideration of others. Esteeming others more than we esteem ourselves. Some being prepared to take fellow Christians to court even, to sue their brothers in the church. And others celebrating their newfound freedom in Christ without the slightest regard for the different consciences of their fellow believers. In general, they were very keen on the more dramatic gifts of the Spirit and were short on love rooted in truth. This is the church that Paul greets in this epistle. It might be easy for us to think that they weren't even saved, that they were called saints, just like we are. I was trying to imagine Paul sitting down to write or dictate this letter and how many tears he must have shed having to correct his children at Corinth. In many ways, Corinth was the problem child for him. So put yourself in Paul's sandals for just a minute. Try to imagine. Because in Acts 18, we read that Paul planted this church. And his core group included Priscilla, Aquila, and Crispus, who he talked about baptizing. Crispus was the ruler of the synagogue at Corinth. Paul had poured his heart and soul into that church. He commends them in verse 4 like this. I give thanks to my God always for you. Think about that. I give thanks. I'm always thankful for you. Because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. This is quite a group at this church. They had a nearly perfect church, you might say. But the first issue among many that he will address to the Corinthians is the issue of division in the church. So there's really nothing new under the sun. Churches have been divided, and there has been divisiveness in churches ever since. 
Churches have been plagued literally with divisions. Joe mentioned one that occurred at the Reformation, and I might add, Joe, that they left us. We didn't leave them. But <laughs> could be a minor disagreement that Joe and I have. But it's all good, as they say. From the beginning, we differ. Most of us have either witnessed or been part of a division. How many of you have been in a church where there was a major division or even a split? Look around, man. It's just about everybody in here. How many of you had just started coming to a church? <laughs> we'll subtract out that group. Um, it's all too common, isn't it? Never happened at all, saints, I hope. God hopes. Beginning in verse 11, Paul addresses what he heard from the grapevine. Someone in Chloe's household had let Paul know that there was quarreling among the church members. Notice that Paul didn't get this from the quarrelers. He gets it secondhand. Somebody told somebody who told somebody who told somebody in Chloe's household that there's some guys that just can't get along in that church. Why didn't they call Paul? Why didn't they write Paul? Why didn't they send a messenger to Paul and say, hey, I've got, I've got a conflict with so-and-so. I need your advice. No, he had to hear it secondhand. What, was this, what is quarreling? To be clear in the Greek, it means a serious conflict. It could be physical. It could be verbal. But it clearly an intensive, bitter conflict. It means to clash severely, to struggle, to fight. One translation says to pour fire on someone. Not good. Paul must have been brokenhearted to hear this occurring in this church that he planted, and he had responsibility for it at a spiritual level. A church that was, as he said, enriched in all speech and knowledge. This was, an, this was a high intellect church, probably highly situated in the socioeconomic strata of their society, kind of like us. You see, Paul had a high view of the church at Corinth and in general. The fact that he used brothers twice in, in this passage indicates his appeal to the family nature of the church. The church should be like a family. It's what God intends it to be. He wants us to treat each other like brothers and sisters do. He appeals to their brotherhood. Should brothers struggle with each other? I know it happens all the time, but isn't it so beautiful to see brothers? I was just thinking of uh, talking to my own brother this week. We call each other every, maybe once every couple of weeks, and just how great it is just to talk to my brother and know that he loves me and I love him. You see, quarreling is unbecoming of Christians. And what were they quarreling about? A major doctrine, you might ask? Something that the Westminster Confession of Faith could address or the Book of Church Order? No. He addresses doctrines later on in this, in this book, doctrines like church discipline. Now, in today's passage, they're arguing, quarreling over who their spiritual leader should be. 
In today's context, we might paraphrase Paul by saying, each of you follows, each of you says you follow Paul or Paulus or Peter or Tim Keller or John MacArthur or Doug Wilson or John Piper. Well, I could go on. <laughs> Don't walk out. <laughs> Don't get mad. Our selectivity or our preferences for a particular preacher or leader to the neglect of the whole truth, that whole person of Christ, is dangerous and it can lead to division. And differences, as long as, as long as differences are handled with kindness and love, we can work through them. But at a certain point, that word difference in Greek means heresis, it's where we get the word heresy from. Differences that go to an extreme lead to division. And what did the quarreling lead to here? It led to cliques, the formation of factions, dissensions. And that word dissension comes from the Greek word schismata, where the word schism comes from, which means literally to cut apart like you would with a pair of schizers. Paul was dealing with open strife and fighting between these different factions. And he was pleading with them, stop ripping yourselves apart what are you doing? And what were the factions that were listed here in this passage? The first was the Paul faction or the Paul party. Paul, after all, started the church. In chapter 3, he says he planted it and Apollos watered it. They worked together. Literally, Paul was the church planter and Apollos cultivated. And together, with God's help, they grew the church. Virtually every church pastor that has a long tenure like Paul, develops a following. Maybe there's a Brad party here. Maybe I'm part of that party. I like Brad. This party had taken, however, their eyes off the ball and are always longing for the good old days. That was good when Brad was here. If only we had Paul back. So personality cults within a congregation represent a failure to let God's love change our attitudes toward each other. We're clicked apart company, or as they say, split sheets over what we convince ourselves is a theological difference, when most often it's the case that we just disagree over personal preferences. And we all have them. Paul was aware of this tendency to worship, the, as he called the super apostles, the celebrity preachers, that's why he went to great lengths to explain why his emphasis wasn't on baptism when he says in verse 14, Thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. Let anyone should say that I baptized in my own name. But Paul wasn't undervaluing baptism here, but he was emphasizing that his main focus was on preaching the message of the cross and salvation through the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. So we had the Paul party. Then we had the Apollos party. Apollos is the one who watered it. And we don't know a lot about him. Fascinating character. But in Acts 18 and 9, we learned that he came from Alexandria in North Africa. Probably the Harvard of the Mediterranean at that time. He was a man of great intellect and enthusiasm. Skillful in speech and exposition. Charismatic. A fine logician and rhetorician. No wonder he attracted followers. He must have been quite a preacher. 
And he was also a faithful follower of Christ and a co-laborer with Paul. Both of them unwittingly started a personality cult within the church. It wasn't their intention. When a, group of, when a group of Christians, when we want to get our teaching from our favorite guru, schism is not far behind. It's interesting to note here that Paul had a very different gift than Apollos, but they complemented each other. I found, I found this interesting. Maybe I didn't make note of this before. But in verse, in verse 17, Paul admits that he didn't preach with eloquent words of wisdom. Later in chapter 10, we read, For some say, and this is about Paul, his letters are weighty and forceful, but his physical presence is unimpressive, and his speaking is of no account. That's a little brutal, isn't it? In other words, Paul was a pretty good writer, but not much of a physical specimen and kind of a worthless preacher. Finally, in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul admits as much himself, almost as a type of apology. He says, I may be unskilled as a speaker, but I'm not lacking in knowledge. I know what God told me. I just can't get it out. Now, whether or not Paul had a speech impediment or maybe mumbled, or like I do, or was a stutterer, we don't know. Paul definitely was not a good speaker. So as far as his pastoral resume, Apollos looked to have been the better candidate. Now we come to the Peter party. There was probably the, this was probably the Jewish converts in the church. They would have brought their legalistic tendencies into the church. After all, Peter was given the keys to the kingdom. Wasn't there only one right church? Peter's church? Shouldn't there just be one head of the church? Peter? Well, that legalism forced Paul to have to deal with the issue of food for idols in chapters 8 through 10. The whole fight over kosher food. In Galatians, Paul wrote, God had given me the responsibility of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as he had given Peter the responsibility of preaching to the Jews. Different gifts, different perspectives on the gospel for one church. It's a good thing. Here we see that Paul and Peter complemented their gifts. Did you ever wonder why we have four gospel writers? Not one. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each with unique perspectives on the life of Christ. None of us have a 360-degree view, do we? And God intends for the church to be diverse like that, to be diverse in its gifting, in its ethnicity, in its style. God loves diversity. As you looked around the church, you see a lot of diversity. It should be a beautiful thing when it works well. Unity, however, is not uniformity. Those are two very different things. Nor is it equity. Unity happens when we reason together, when we have differences, work through them respectfully, listen more than we talk, try to get inside someone else's skin, see where they're coming from. That can be very healthy and and rewarding. You learn a lot when you listen to other people. 
Some of us are like those, however, in the Peter party. We prefer a clear, black-and-white, regimented guideline for faith and behavior. It should be just like this. We can talk about the regulative principle of worship later, but it's kind of like that. Things should be very regulated, which has has its value for sure. But if we're not careful, that regulation or those regulations can become spiritual straitjackets for us. And it can be all too easy to judge a person's spirituality by their outward expression by their outward expressions of religion. Legalists tend to push their own personal standards onto everyone else. They're quick to judge other people's motives, thinking the worst of them and their intentions. Let's just jump to what they think. I still remember going out to lunch with a group of pastors at my presbytery in Arizona. And one of, the, one of them, I won't mention his name, he knows who he is. He was wearing a clerical collar. And it's hot down there most of the time. So we're sitting down there in shirt sleeves, and he's got a collar up to his neck, a white, a white clerical collar. And, uh, well, his name's Kelly. He's a great guy. And we kidded him about, his, about being up to his neck in spirituality. He took it really well. But we need to guard against that back-to-Jerusalem mentality just as much as we need to guard against the back-to-Athens mentality. License versus liberty. We need to walk by faith, that tightrope of faith. The story is told about this old, quarrelsome Quaker fellow who went from one meeting to another, never finding the true church. Someone once said to him, well, what church are you going to now? And he said, I'm in the true church at last. I found it. How many people belong to that church? Oh, just me and my wife. I'm not sure about her, though, sometimes. <laughs> Finally, we come to the Christ party. And as odd as it seems, this is the hardest one to evaluate because it sounds good. I want to be in the Christ party. We, I, follow Jesus. But they also took human leadership very lightly. They were independent, anti-authoritarian, and because of their spiritual superiority, they made others feel spiritually inferior. It's hard to speak against someone who has a word from the Lord. How often have you talked to someone and said, well, I got a word from the Lord on that? It's hard to argue against that. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) you must be right. This group, is, this group is based on strong experiences which can't be evaluated or debated. Gnostic, Gnostic mysticism, popular in the world at that time, would have found a home in this group. So Paul was urging all these four groups to work together toward harmony. It's okay for one of us to be fans of Tim Keller and another of John MacArthur. That's fine as long as it doesn't lead to division. Paul believed that it wasn't merely possible for Christians of many different kinds to live together in harmony, but that this is our calling from God. Such mutual recognition, we give each person the freedom to express his or her convictions and insights. That can lead to real true unity. That's what he talked about in verse 10, being of the same mind, and of the same judgment. 
So how do we guard against disunity and division here at All Saints in the months and years ahead? With so many blessings that God has given us, I was just thinking yesterday, you know, how many blessings has God given this church? You would have to get a book to write them all down. We've been blessed with some of the most wonderful people I've ever met in my life. We've been blessed with prime land and a location that's right in the center of growth for this valley. So much opportunity to spread the gospel. So much opportunity to share our beloved faith with our neighbors. Seems like every month we see new folks joining the church like the Walkers did this morning or coming to faith. Our church is rich in the most important things in life. Amen? As I usually do with sermons, I asked Rhoda yesterday if she would listen to this sermon and give me her feedback. Which she did, she always does. She's really good about that, putting the timer on it. Then I got to thinking, you know, she's been listening to Mike Kelly for six straight months. (laughs) And that guy, I was thinking, man, that guy can really preach. He's really good. And I know how mediocre I am. Then I thought of Paul. And I thought, gosh, Paul himself wrote down. He didn't have to write that down, that he wasn't good looking, that he wasn't much of a physical specimen. He didn't have to write down that he couldn't preach very well. He didn't hide that. Now I realize that God uses each of us for his glory if we let him. Will you let him? After all, it's the message, not the messenger, that counts. How much more attractive and powerful are we his messengers, when we're united and not divided. So three things that I mentioned at the beginning can help us maintain our unity. First is focusing on the whole person of Christ, our all in all. As Paul asked, is Christ divided? Can each faction, can each of these four factions or many other factions, can they take a piece of Christ away? The piece that they value the most, like the soldiers divided his garments before his crucifixion, should we, we should all want all of Christ and give our all to him. Secondly, we focus on the cross of Christ. Paul asks, was Paul crucified for you? Paul liked rhetorical questions. No. We should focus on Christ and Christ crucified rather than even good men like Paul and Peter and Apollos. Jesus is the only one, the only one who can unite men and women, boys and girls, families. And he does so through his cross. The ground of the cross is equal for each one of us. We will celebrate the Lord's Supper shortly, and it's a sacrament of reconciliation made possible through the cross. We all come together equally to the Lord's Supper as sinners redeemed by his blood. That's our admission ticket. We there acknowledge the disunity caused through our sin and guilt. 
and then gratefully and joyfully celebrate our unity and forgiveness and cleansing. And I think there's no single greater truth, more eloquent or productive of true unity between Christians than looking at the cross of Christ. Finally, we focus on the Lordship of Christ. Who is our Lord? Who do we really serve? Were we baptized in the name of Paul? Or John the Baptist? I met this week a great time meeting with a young, young man who will be baptized next week. And I reminded him that he could always look back on his baptism as a reminder of his dedication to the Lordship of Christ. And never forget that he is Christ. We belong to Christ alone. Paul exhorts us to focus then on the whole person of Christ, the cross of Christ, and the Lordship of Christ, and to express our God-given unity in Christ. May all saints be a beacon of Christian unity and love for the world around us. Amen.